It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, part of our service today, and, and I would even say a part of our worship today, is going to be uh, what we typically call baby dedication, but that's sort of a misnomer. We're going to have, uh, in just a second, I'll call the, the parents forward and, and their children um, to go through this process. But really, we're not so much dedicating our babies as we are dedicating ourselves as parents and as a church to raising these children in the fear and, and admonition of the Lord. Uh, there's nothing about this service that confers any sort of grace to these children. It's not a ticket to heaven. Uh, we know that it doesn't mean that they're going to, to be, with certainty, going to be raised up and, and trust in Jesus when they uh, are old enough to do so. They could completely reject everything that we teach and, and, and end up living uh, under the, the weight of those uh, decisions. So we don't we don't see what we're doing here as conferring some sort of grace to them. It's not a guarantee that they're going to make it to heaven. But what it is is believing that God blesses means and that God is willing and generous with his salvation, that he is over the top with his generosity, and that if we are faithful to raise our children in a way that honors God, that we have some promises through Scripture that indicate God is very willing and often does use those means that we enact in order to uh, save our children. So um, if you would, if you, uh, I could have my parents come forward at this point. Uh, just stand up front here. You can bring your children too, please. I want to look at a few verses of Scripture as they're coming up here. just to sort of share them with the with these parents and with the congregation. So I'll start reading those as you all come forward. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Notice these are words spoken to the, to the parents. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So there's clear instruction from God's word that we as parents need to uh, raise our kids uh, in the word of God. I'll read a couple more here. Psalm 78, verse 5 says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, stubborn and rebellious uh, whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. We know the general promise in uh, Proverbs 22, 6, to train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And then the last one that I had on my mind that I think gets overlooked in a situation like this is the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
we think of that last verse, those last verses in particular as being our call to missions, and it is. But we need to realize and recognize as parents and as a church, the mission field starts with these babies. The mission field starts with these children that are here. And that's why in the Old Testament, God said, teach your kids so that they will know me and so their kids will know me. And I think there's a connection between that Old Testament passage and train up your child in the way he should go and that New Testament commission to uh, take the gospel. And we need to realize and recognize that as God's people, we have the Spirit of God and the power of Christ at work in us as we do these things. So parents, I'll have you turn and face me for a second. Just turn your back to the world. Uh, I'm going to go through three questions, and I'm going to read them out to you. And what I want your response to be when I, when I read the question, I want you to answer with, with God's help, we will. Okay. So will you, parents, commit to teach God's word to your child and live out the gospel in your home? Okay. Will you, parents, commit to pray for your child to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? All right. Will you commit to partner with this church community, seek their help and accountability, and lead your child to do the same? Okay, now you can turn and face the congregation. I'm going to ask you all to stand up for this part. We're going to participate here. So the parents have said their part. They've committed themselves before God to raise their kids in a certain way, but we've already recognized that we as church members, as a church family, bear a part of that, a responsibility in that. And so the same thing I want to hear from you all as affirming these questions. I want you all to answer back when I ask them, with God's help we will. Church Will you partner with these parents to be praying for them as they lead their children spiritually? With God's help, we will. And will you partner with these parents by teaching their children at church and modeling a Christ-like example in support of what the parents are teaching and modeling? With God's help, we will. All right. I'm going to pray for these parents and these children, and then I'll, I'll hand out a gift with the dedication card and... You all can go ahead and be seated. Father, we thank you for this day. We're thankful, God, for these children. We know from your word that children are a gift from the Lord. Uh, they are a heritage given by you, O God. You have fearfully and painstakingly crafted each one of these children while forming in the mother's womb. And, and yes, we know there's a science behind it. We understand, though, that Christ is the one who holds all those laws of science together. We understand that you're the God of order who has created the cells to divide and the DNA strands to form and, and that commands eye color and, and hair color and whether they'll go bald when they get older and things like that. We, we understand those things, God. We know that you're the one that controls them. And so we, we commit these children to you. We commit these parents to you. And God, we commit ourselves to you as a church that you would give us the faithfulness. It's, it's easy to say with God's help we will. But God, we truly need your help to do so because we are weak and forgetful. God, we are easily distracted and we often plan and leave plans undone. So God, with your help, help these parents to raise their kids. And by your help, God, help us as a church to, uh, to, to show the grace of God to them. And so we thank you and give you praise for this, O oh God. In Christ's name, amen.
now we will have our ushers come forward. As they're coming, I just want to highlight uh, some ministry work that's going on down at the Lighthouse uh, home in Owensboro. Um, I'm learning more and more about them. I've had the opportunity to preach down there uh, three times now totally, twice here recently. It's a, it's a great opportunity for ministry. It's one of the things that we're doing is an outreach from the church. And Lighthouse is a place where men in the area go to recover from addiction. They spend some time down there, and once a month we're going down, Daniel and I, uh, he's leading some worship, and, and I'm preaching as an opportunity to give these guys the gospel. That's truly what they need. Uh, it's not that the, the uh, rehabilitation process is bad or wrong in any way, and we don't want to minimize that, but we know that you can re- rehabilitate yourself to not abuse drugs, but you, you can't rehabilitate yourself to become a Christian. And if you stop using drugs, your life is qualitatively better, but it still falls short of the glory of God. And so what the program does is it focuses on what it can do, helping people conquer addiction. What we do is seek to give them the gospel, which will further help them conquer that addiction by breaking the chains that sin has over their lives. And so I just would encourage you all to be thinking about that from time to time, praying about that, asking God's blessing in that ministry. Uh, and and in liberating those men from their addictions and in helping the gospel to be um, effective and and win souls as we do this. So will you pray with me? Father, as we gather here this morning, we are grateful to be your, your people. God, we are grateful that Christ did come into this world as a man. He lived perfectly according to the law, God, fulfilling what we could not fulfill, what we have all failed to fulfill Uh, and yet God he did that for us he did that so that he could lay down his life as a sacrifice an atonement for the sins of his people God so that he could purchase uh, and redeem and ransom a people for his own name his own glory and so father we see if we fast forward to the book of revelation we see uh, in, in the day of eternity God gathered around the throne of God and of the Lamb is a group of people that His blood purchased from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, worshiping and praising and honoring Christ because He gave His life to ransom them from their sins. So God, now is the time when we think about how we can help support that and further that, God, and and, and be a a partner in the proclamation of the gospel because we know that that in the, the list of gifts that we're not all given the gift of proclamation in the same way. But God, we are some of us given, and, and all of us here certainly, God, are given an affluence that the world doesn't know. We are, we are some of the wealthiest people in the entire world. Every one of us here today falls into that category. And so God, what we ask is that you would open our hearts and the compassion of our hearts, God, to be partners with the gospel work that we would give to support, God, the, the ministries to, to, to places like Lighthouse or to the Crossroads Women's Shelter or to the missionaries that we support around the world, God, because we're not all called to go in the same way, but we are all called, God, to participate. And I pray that you would help us to, to recognize that is our identity as believers, as Christ followers. We're not spectators, God. We are active participants. And I pray that you would open up our hearts and our our, our Um, compassion, God, and that you would help us to give generously to the work of your kingdom around the world, and that you would bless it, God, uh, as it goes forth, that it would accomplish all that you send it to do. 
And we ask these things in Christ's holy and precious and glorious name. Amen. All right, we can let our teachers go out right now with the children. And while they are headed out, go ahead and get your Bibles this morning. We're back in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. And uh, we'll start at verse 17. We're going to focus in on 20 through 24. But Ephesians 4, verse number 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You know, too often uh, in our day and time, uh, it seems as if people assume that uh, the Christian life really is all about the the faith and, and coming to Christ. It's all about the moment of conversion. It's all about believing and trusting in Jesus. And kind of once you've done that, you're good. And when Jesus returns, he's going to take us to heaven. Or when I die, I'll go to heaven. But right now I just sit and, and I'm good. I'm I'm saved. I'm secure. I, I go to church, sure, and I try to give and try to do things here and there, but but I, I'm secure, and so I just kind of ride out my time here in this life, just waiting for Jesus to, to get back. The reality is that the New Testament teaches us that the Christian life is different than that. It, it teaches us that God is in the process of changing us. He's taking each and every one of his children and he's shaping them and and forming them. The the Christian life doesn't start when you come to faith in or it doesn't end when you come uh, to, to faith in Christ. Instead, it only begins. You see, it's not enough, is it really? It's not enough for our sins to be forgiven. God wants to also deliver you from the bondage of sin. Christ died not only to save you from the penalty of sin. We've said this before, and maybe it's sticking with you by now. He didn't die just to deliver you from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. You see, God wants to change you. He, he wants to pay for the sins that you've committed so that you don't have to face and, and be accountable for those on the judgment day. But more than that, He wants to deliver you from the bondage that that sin has created in your life. And this change that occurs is what we might call sort of the Christian change process. It's, it, it is a process. It, it doesn't happen all at, all at once. It's not as if you believe and bam, you're automatically transformed and you never struggle with sin anymore. You, you automatically don't lie anymore. You always tell the truth. You don't lust anymore. You, you have totally pure uh, heart and mind. That's not the way it works. Something does happen. There is an instantaneous event that we're going to talk about. But there's also this process in which you are changing over time. I call it a change process of, of the Christian life, but the Bible actually has 
a word for this. It's called sanctification. So when you're reading in your Bible and it talks about being sanctified or that God is sanctifying us or it talks about sanctification, it's talking about this thing that, that I'm talking about here. It's the change process of the Christian life. The sanctification is the process in which you more and more are turning away from sin and more and more you are living for the Lord. You're being progressively made more holy. It's sanctification. The word means to become more holy. Um, and, and it is a progressive work. From the heart level, we might say this way, because it's not just about behavior, is it? That's what we learn from the Pharisees. It's, it's more than just behavior. From the heart level, this process of sanctification is learning to hate sin and learning to love God. And as your heart is redirected, the things that you once loved, you no longer love, you, you hate, you disdain as God hates them, and the things that you used to not love and not care about, now God has, is creating within you new, a new love. You love the Lord, and so you no longer want to pursue these things, you no longer want to live in sin, but now you want to live for the Lord. It's a change of affections as much as anything. This process, though, is something that we have to take an active part in. We don't just sit back and it, and it just magically occurs. This is why sometimes people can be saved for a long time and there's very little change in them. And the answer, the, the reason that is, is because they are not actively participating in that process. There's, there's a problem there. It could be that they've never been converted or it could be that they've never been discipled and that they themselves are not actively pursuing Christ as, as they ought. So this process is something that we have to take an active part. There was a sort of a movement, a theological movement. It made its way into pop culture and, or pop evangelical culture, we might say. Uh, in, in years gone by. The motto was this, let go and let God. Now we understand in some context that statement could actually be uh, hold some truth to it, right? Uh, there are certain events, there are certain things that happen in life and they're just beyond your control and so you need to just simply let go of those things. Don't always try to be forcing it. Don't, don't try to make it right yourself and let God work. We, we let God be God. We let God act as God and, and let God do the things that only God can do. But when it comes to the change process in your life, when it become, when it comes to you getting rid of sin out of your life and more and more living for the Lord, when it become, when it comes to this process of becoming more and more holy, this is something that you must be active in. There are several passages that make this clear. Uh, the, our growth process uh, we need to understand is, is something that we must take part in. We, we must make an effort. So 2 Peter 1.5 says this, for this very reason, there's a lot that's going on in that context and we won't be able to unpack all this, but, but I think this is clear in this statement. For this very reason, he says, make every effort to add to your faith or supplement your faith with virtue. Make every effort. You see, in the Christian life, you are called to make effort. He's saying you have faith. Well, now make every effort to, to add to that faith these virtues. And he goes on and lists different things. But you see, effort is required on your part. Or you could look at Hebrews 12, 14, in which uh, it says, strive for peace, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see 
the Lord. The command there is strive for peace and strive for holiness. And if you don't have holiness, it says, without that holiness, no one will see the Lord. So strive for holiness. Christian, you, you are to make every effort to add to your faith virtue. Things like love and, and kindness and those virtues. And, and you are to strive for holiness in your life. So you've got to just stop right there and begin, begin to think about in my, in my Christian walk, in, in my life, am I changing? Do I see growth? Do I see development? Am I more and more not sinning? And more and more, am I living for the Lord? If someone were to do a graph of my life, would they, would they see progress? It might be slow progress, but, but would they see progress in my life? Would I look more like Christ now than I did five years ago or ten years ago? Or am I just, you know, straight line? I'm just this, the same. Well, after you ask yourself that question, then ask yourself the question, am I striving for this? Am I making every effort to add virtue to my faith? Am I pursuing Christ? Am I striving for holiness in my life? Or am I just sitting back and saying, well, I'm saved and satisfied. I'm going to heaven one day. Jesus is going to return or I'm going to die and I'm going to be in heaven and I'm just going to ride out my time here and not worry about anything. That's what you're not called to do. Now we need to understand and remember that we are saved by grace. Our effort in this change process is not what brings salvation. So you don't come to God and say, look, God, here's my chart of my life. Here's my progress. And over the past 10 years, you can see up to that moment that that car hit me and I died. Uh, over the past 10 years, I've been progressing. So I should get into heaven, right? Because I've, I've made every effort and I have strived for holiness in my life. So I get to heaven. No, no, we're, we get to heaven by the grace of God. And, and we're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. For by grace, remember in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're saved by grace through faith. And yet in response to that grace, we should be living for the Lord. As a response to the salvation that we already have, we should be striving for holiness. We, we should be making every effort to add to our faith. We're saved by faith, but we should be making every effort to add to that faith the virtues that we find in the Bible. And so we are to be striving for this. Now, we need to be clear that even in our effort, even in our striving, that is God working in us. He is working in us through our work, in our growth process. We are never independently working apart from God, but God ordinarily chooses not to work apart from us. That's what we need to understand about this growth process. We're not, it's not as if God says, hey, I've saved you. You've got forgiveness now. Go on and do it. Or it's not even as if God says, I'll do 50, you do 50. 50-50, you, you do your part, I'll do my part. And, you, you get better. You strive and you, you, you do that. That's not the, the way that it works. Instead, God works in us sovereignly to change us, to grow us, but He never does it, or ordinarily I should say, He does not do it apart from our effort. You see, God uses means. God saves people, but He uses the means of our witnessing and our evangelism to save them. He uses the means of their faith to save them. So God uses human means 
even though it is God who is working it out. It's God who is accomplishing it. Now let's look at a couple passages that demonstrate this. 1 Corinthians 15.10. This is Paul talking about his ministry as an apostle. But he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is who I am, and, and I am what I am by God's grace. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul's saying he didn't just give me this grace and then I sat back and received it and didn't worry about it. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than all the other apostles. I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you see that tension there in, in what the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, I worked my butt off in this ministry. I've worked harder than him. I've given my entire life. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've traveled all over the known world to take the gospel. I've worked harder than anybody else. God gave me this grace of this ministry to be an apostle. And, and his grace wasn't in vain because I worked hard. But it wasn't me that was doing the work. It was the grace of God in me. So it was God working in me and he used my efforts. We see this also in Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, not just when I'm there, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Strive for holiness. You, you, you need to make every effort, as Peter says, to add to your faith virtue and so on. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You ought to be working hard at this, he says. But, he goes on to say, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you work it out with fear and trembling. You, you need to take this, this process in your life, this change process, sanctification, your growth in, as a Christian. You need to work it out with fear and trembling. But it's God at work in you. God is working to bring this about in your life. One more quick passage. John 15, 5. Jesus said to His disciples, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And guess what? The, the branches apart from the vine can do nothing. And in the same way, you apart from me can do nothing. So it is Christ who supplies us with the strength. It's Christ that gives us the knowledge. It is Christ that gives us the energy. It is Christ who is working in us. And apart from him, we can do nothing. But don't you see that he's assuming that you're doing something? He's saying you're doing it, but, but you're not doing it apart from me. So there's our effort, but it's the effort, it's the strength, it's the energy, it's the knowledge that Christ has supplied for me. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. So one person said this, Louis Burkhoff said this about sanctification and our effort in sanctification. When it is said that man takes part in the work of sanctification, this does not mean that man is an independent agent in the work so as to make it partly the work of God and partly the work of man. But merely what it, does, what it does mean is that God affects the work in part through the instrumentality of man as a rational being by requiring of him prayerful and intelligent cooperation with the Spirit. So if you're going to change this morning, what you need to understand is this. You have to work at it. 
If you think that showing up and sitting on a pew for the next 20 years until we carry you out and bury you in the cemetery, that, that you're going to be changing, you're, you're not. You're not going to change just by showing up. You're not going to just change by just having your name on, on a church roll. Changing, growing in holiness, being sanctified is something that requires your effort. And ordinarily, God does it, but He doesn't do it apart from your work. So church... You need to change. There are things in your life that need to change and it, it requires your effort. But all the glory goes to God because it's God working in us. Now secondly, Christian growth is learned from Christ. Christian growth is learned from Christ. Remember the context here? Paul's saying to them, he's, he's talking to them about this change process and he says, to, now I testify in the Lord, verse 17, don't walk as Gentiles do. Remember what he's saying there. These are Gentiles. The Ephesians are Gentiles. He's saying to them, don't be yourself. You need to change. Don't be Gentiles anymore. You need to change. And then he reminds them of what their old life was like. And we looked at that last week. But then in verse 20, he says this, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So he's saying, look, you're not who you used to be. And the reason is that you've learned from Christ. So this this growth process, this change that occurs is something that we learn from Jesus Christ. You have learned it from him. He's saying, in a sense, you've been taught in the school of Christ. An analogy that might be helpful is if you think about coaches, how oftentimes if they're good coaches, they have a philosophy. They have a way of doing things. And, and as they coach and as they train their players, they sort of make an imprint on those players so that the, the characteristics of that coach and their philosophy sort of gets molded onto that player. So I, I think of, I'm a football fan, and uh, I think of the Steelers. I'm, I'm a Bengals fan, and I hate the Steelers. Okay? And uh, if you're a Steelers fan, I, I apologize, but... I, I can't help it. It's, it's my birthright as a Cincinnati Bengals fan to hate the Pittsburgh Steelers. But one thing that I cannot deny about the Pittsburgh Steelers is that there's a grit to that team. There is a, a toughness. Mike's a Steelers fan, so he, he knows this is true. And this is why you hate them, because they always beat the Bengals, because they're tougher than the Bengals. And it comes down to it, and they're close, and somebody makes a play, and it's just like, here we go again. But there's a toughness and a grit. You see, the coaches there over the years, have, that, that's been their motto. That's sort of been the, the, whole, the whole organization. That's what they believe in, and they impose that onto their players. And so you can say, oh yeah, they're, they're Steeler players. You know, or you know, if you think about players who played for like Bob Knight, he had a certain way of doing it besides throwing chairs and yelling at refs, but he had a certain toughness that he wanted in his players. He wanted it done a, a certain way. And you could say, look at that player. You can tell that's a Bobby Knight player. Look at the way that he sets screens. Look at the way he fights through that. Bob Knight has made his imprint on that player for sure. And, and sometimes that might have been an imprint of his fist, but, but you know, uh, that's neither here nor there. So, so that's what it's saying here, okay? Look, you've been to Christ. You've been to the school of Jesus. Don't, don't 
don't act like an AAU player anymore, a ball hog and a showboat. You, you've played for Bob Knight. You know how to play team basketball now, okay? And, and that's what he's saying here. Don't live like the Gentiles do anymore in immorality and the darkness of their understanding. That's the way you used to live. But listen, you've been to the school of Jesus Christ and you've learned a different way to live. Jesus has made His imprint on you. And now, when, when people see you, they ought to recognize that person has been to Christ. They have learned from Christ. She is definitely someone who has been to the school of Christ. Well, what is it? What is this truth that we have learned from Christ? He gives three things here in verses 22 through 24. The, the three things are, are this. Look at verse 22. We've learned from Christ. First of all, this is the curriculum in the school of Christ. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So put off your old self. Number two, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And number three, put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this is the three-step curriculum at the school of Christ. Number one, put off your old self. Number two, have your mind reshaped, have the way that you think renewed and made new according to the teaching of Christ. And number three, put on the new self, which is Christ. The new man is Christ. That's the school. So what does this mean to put off and put on? Well, it's an analogy. The, the word literally means like to take off your jacket, to put it off, to lay a garment aside, to get undressed in, in a sense. So Acts 7.58, it says, and the witnesses when they were stoning Stephen, laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That is, they, they wore these tunics and they're getting ready to stone uh, Stephen. And so they take off their tunics and they lay them down. They put them off at the feet of, of Saul. And that's what we are to do. We are to put off our old self. And, and that's what we're talking about here. When we talk about the old man, some of your versions might say put off the old man uh, or they may say put off the old self. What is that talking about? Well, it's talking about our sin nature. Our old self is another way of talking about that nature within us that is corrupted by sin. Our nature, as we've talked about before, is that which makes us who we are. It's the, the complex of the various aspects of our being that make us uniquely who we are. It's our personality, our thought process, our reasoning, our intellect, our will, our emotions. You know, you stop and think about it. Why, why does one person love a certain kind of food and somebody else hates it? Why is it that one person is able to comprehend very detailed, difficult things to understand and, and another person isn't? Why does one person choose and they, they, they love to travel all over the world and live in remote parts of the world and somebody else, they think that sounds horrible. To them, their ideal life is just this small country life and, and never really going too far from home. What is it that makes the difference? Well, there, there may be various things, but in part what it is, is our nature. It is what makes us who we are. And all of us have unique natures. We all have unique personalities. But there's one thing that is universal to all of us and all of our natures, no matter what, and that is it's corrupted by sin. We all love sin. You see, Adam and Eve believed a lie, and as a result of this, 
the corrupting effect of sin spread to all of humanity so that all of us are born with an inclination. All of us are born with a nature that is inclined toward sin. It it affects every aspect of us. Our intellects believe things that are clearly false. So you see people who deny the existence of God or they deny the existence of, of morality. We believe things like, I can be happy if I just have more stuff. I will be happy. And, and that's what, what will make me laugh. Why do we believe that? Because our intellects, our minds are, are broken. Our reasoning uh, you know, is, is corrupted by sin. We rationalize things that are absurd. We make excuses for evil and wickedness. Everybody's sin. You ever notice that? Everyone's sin is always excusable, right? Because our minds are so powerful. Our, our ability to reason is so strong that we can reason our way out of anything. And, and clearly this would be wrong in every other case. But in my case, with these circumstances, it's okay. We're able to rationalize the absurd. Our emotions are corrupted by sin. We, we delight in evil. We sit around on Tuesday and Thursday evenings and, and, and watch sitcoms and we watch television and we delight in people committing adultery. We, we delight in fornication. We delight in evil, in wickedness, in murder. And, and we take some pleasure in that. And then we come into church on Sunday mornings to worship God and we're just like, uh, we're singing again. This We've sung this song before, haven't we? You know why are we singing that same song? We're unmoved by the glory of God and we're moved by things that are wicked. Why? Because our natures are sinful. They're they're broken. They don't don't delight in what they ought to delight in. Our wills, part of our nature is, is broken as well. We choose to do evil things. And we tell ourselves, no, no matter how serious the consequences, no matter how wrong we know it is, we say, well, I'm going to stop doing that. And we don't stop doing it. Why? Because our wills are corrupted by sin and we're not able to overcome those things. And so, that is what we're talking about when we talk about the old self, the old you. Is that, that nature that is corrupted by sin. Because of sin, our, our nature is, is fallen and it is broken. And that's what Paul's just been laying out. We won't go through that again in those earlier verses, but that's what he's been talking about, the Gentiles who walk in the futility of their minds. So we are then to put off that old nature, our, 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 our sinful nature, the old part of us that has been corrupted by deceitful desires. Well, that sounds... Rather impossible, doesn't it? Uh, you know, I just said that your nature is what makes you who you are. So it's kind of like Paul said, you need to stop being who you are. Well, that doesn't sound very easy or doable at, at all. Our nature is the complex of various aspects of our being, our will, our mind, our intellect. Can you just change all of those things? I don't, I don't think you can. You know what? And, and, and moreover, Paul is saying here, take it off. Take that old nature off like you take off a jacket. Really? That, that doesn't seem possible. You know, you can't stop loving what you love. Try. You say, I'm not going to love that sin anymore. You can't. You can't start hating something that you, that you loved. You can't force yourself to do that. You can't force your mind to believe something that, that you feel is wrong intellectually. You can't just decide, you know, I'm going to start choosing differently. I'm not going to choose that anymore. You can tell yourself that, but eventually you'll be right back in the same spot. 
Jeremiah understood this, the Old Testament prophet in Jeremiah 13.23. He said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also can you who are accustomed to doing evil learn to do good. Look, if somebody can change their skin color or a leopard can change his spots, then, then you can learn to change your, your behavior. When you've been doing evil, you can learn to do good. He's saying there it's really in, impossible. Well, what kind of hope can we have then? Can we change? He's saying put off your nature. And, and I'm, I'm just showing you that that really is, in, in one sense, on our own, it's an impossible thing to do to get rid of who you used to be. You can't just you know, wake up and decide, I'm going to be a totally different person now. Where can we find hope? Well, the answer is in grammar. <laughs> and you might think, oh, that's crazy. The, the answer is in, in this verse in, in uh, 22. In, in the tense of this verb, actually, it says, you have learned Christ, and then in verse 22, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. And in that version, in most versions, it appears as a command. You need to put this off. But in reality, uh, this is actually a statement of fact and it's in the past tense. It's not a command, put this off right now. It is a statement of fact that is in the past tense. You have put off the old self. You see, he's pointing them back to, to their conversion. You could see this in Colossians 3, where, where Colossians is kind of a, a parallel um, uh, epistle to Ephesians. There are many same themes that, that come up. In Colossians 3.9, this is what it says. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, again, past tense, you have put off the old self with its practices. You see, what he's saying here is not a command. You need to put off your old self. It's a statement of fact. In Christ, through the Gospel, at conversion, at regeneration, when the Lord saved you, you have already put off your old self. It's a statement of fact. It's something for the believer that has already occurred. It's what Paul is talking about in, in Romans chapter 6. Just listen to the themes that, that come up here. Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, you've already died. Your old self, your old nature, your old man is already dead through Christ. So you can't continue to live in sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we've been united in the death of Christ, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now listen to verse 6. We know that our old self, there's that same terminology, we know that our old man, we know that our old sinful nature that makes us the sinners that we are was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing it's powerless if you have if you are in christ if you have believed your old sinful nature is broken it is dead the power is gone so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. You see, the reason it's possible this morning for you to put off your old self is because your old self has already been crucified with Christ. That is, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, if the Lord has saved you, that old sin nature that you have that drives you to sinful behaviors, its power has been broken. It has been crucified. You know, earlier I mentioned that you can't just stop. You can't just decide to stop thinking or believing or feeling or acting in a certain way. That's not something you can just decide to do. A, a leopard can't change its spot. The, the Ethiopian can't change the color of his sin. Sinners can't just decide to stop sinning. It's part of our nature. But what you can do in Jesus Christ is to be crucified with Christ and your old self, your old nature can die. That's the only way to get rid of it. That's the only way to deal with our sin. You see, what we need as human beings is not moral reform. We don't need to turn over a new leaf. We don't need to just try a little harder next time. We need to die. Our sin nature is powerful and death is the only thing that can change it. It isn't self-help. So this change process has to begin with a death. It has to begin with this radical event. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My old self, Paul saying, is dead. I was crucified with Christ. I'm not Paul anymore in one sense. That nature is dead. And now Christ, the new man, is living within me. And so the gospel kills us before it makes us alive. You've got to die before you can live. It's kind of like chemotherapy and, and radiation. It kills the cells. But that's, that's the way to, to remedy uh, the sin problem. And so the, the Christian... Growth, Christian growth is, is a process. Our death to our old nature is what allows this process to begin, but it's what also assures us that we really can change. If you're here this morning, and maybe you've tried a thousand times to quit gossiping, you've tried a thousand times to live for the Lord, you've tried a thousand times to quit looking at pornography or lusting after women or get rid of your anger, you've tried and you've tried and you've tried, but you've never died. This morning, what needs to happen is you need to die. You need to come to Christ and 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 faith, believe in Him, trust in Him, and your old nature will die and Christ will come to live within you. That's how the process begins. But then it's a process. You've got to continue to get rid of, of that old sin. It's kind of like this. Let me give you an analogy and we'll close with this. Th this process is, is something like this. You know, if you have a bad manager who's running a company and, and they're just running it into the ground. They're making terrible decisions. They're mismanaging funds. They're not good with, with the personnel. They're making all the wrong hires, all the wrong fires. They're implementing all the wrong processes in, in the company and it is just going under. Okay, you can try and try and try to coach that, that manager, do better. This is, you need to go to this class and do this, but, but eventually you come to the realization, this guy just can't manage. He's no good. He's not a manager. He might be good out on the floor or something, but, but he can't manage. What you got to do is fire that guy. And you got to get somebody who's new in the management of that company. But, but once that happens, things don't just automatically turn around, do they? 
If, if that guy's been there for a while, and depending on how big that organization is, there's all kinds of changes that are going to take years and years maybe to, to implement. He's, he's implemented all of these processes. He's got all of these standards that he's, that he's hired all the wrong people. I mean, it's going to take a long time for that new manager to work all the details out and deal with all of the problems that this guy created. That's what's going on with you this morning if you are a Christian. There's new, you're under new management. Jesus Christ is living within you, but your old manager, your old nature, your old self created all kinds of problems. And, and now the rest of your life is dealing with those things. And you know what? That was the old man that used to look at pornography and that was the old man who decided to do those things. Those were some terrible decisions and it brought nothing but disaster and chaos and corruption in my life. We need to change that policy. And we need to start now just think, having a mind that is controlled by purity. You know, that, that old man is the one who, who always lost his temper and who was always yelling at people. And, and there's new management now. I'm under, I'm under the control of the new man, the new self, and now I need, to, I, I need to change this behavior. The reason you can make those changes is because there's new management, but new management doesn't, new management doesn't automatically, de facto, take care of all the problems. There's a process. That's where you are this morning, Christian. If you are a Christian, if you've come to Christ, Christ is living within you. You're, there's a new man. But you need to be involved, actively involved in this process of change. You don't just sit back and say, well, we're just going to let things run as they've always been running. No, they've always been running poorly. They, they were run by someone who was a sinner before and was making all the wrong decisions. And now you need to change those things. That's the Christian life. And we need to be diligent in that. Believer, perhaps you have not been putting in the effort. Perhaps you've been too passive and you just think, well, I'm just going to ride this out till I get to heaven. You need to go to battle against your sin. Unbeliever, if you're here this morning and maybe you've tried before to overcome sinful things, things that you know are wrong, but you've never been freed from them, you need to come to Christ. You need to die to your sin. And you need to yield your life to Jesus Christ. And it's only through that that you will find freedom from your sin. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and I pray for one here that does not know you. I pray for those this morning that are sitting in this pew and they're very religious and they've come to church for a long time and yet they've never died to their sin. They're still under the control of that old manager. Their old nature is still on the throne of their life. And Lord, they, they need to be set free. I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would draw them to your son, Jesus Christ, that they would die to their sin and be set free from the tyranny of that old way of life. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.